This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 418 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show, Nikki Selby. Now, Nikki is a career veteran of the Navy, working in multiple positions, starting out as a corpsman, then transitioning into search and rescue then rescue swimmer, and then ultimately as a nurse. So there is so much value to this conversation. She responded in multiple international arenas, including New York City during the COVID-19 crisis. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 400 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Nikki Selby. Enjoy. Nikki, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you for having me. So opening question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am today in Southern California. SoCal, brilliant. Whereabouts? I used to live in Huntington and Burbank. Are you around that area? I am just north of San Diego, but more inland. Okay, gotcha. Beautiful. Well, I love to start chronologically at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in um, the Philippines and I, my dad was Air Force, so he was stationed there and I was born the last two months of his tour there. So I don't remember any of it. Um, and then we flew back to the States. Uh, he was stationed in various locations. Um, what I do remember is North Dakota and I was, I think 
I think he was stationed there from when I was about one till four. And then we moved to Nebraska and then moved to Las Vegas where he retired. And that's uh, where I spent most of my, my adolescence and childhood and Beautiful. everything else. Now, do you, did, when you were moving around, I always ask people that are either in the military or just their parents, you know, up sticks a lot. When you look back, what are the pros and what are the cons of having that kind of transient uh, childhood? So the the pros are, you know, you get to see a lot of different locations and, you know, even though it's within the States, it's still kind of different cultures. So um, being up in North Dakota, it's, it's much different than being in Las Vegas, for instance. Uh, I, I think that's, you know, it's a great pro to, to be able to, to travel around and, and see how, you know, other people live and, um, Nebraska actually was my favorite place to grow up. It, I, that's where it felt most white picket fence, I guess, <laughs> where you know, my mom stayed at home and my dad went to work and I was involved in all the different, you know, ballet, gymnastics, soccer, tennis, everything that you kind of envisioned growing up as a child. And yeah, I loved it. It was a very small town and um, just felt like a really, you know, solid family unit and area. Um, when we moved to Vegas, it's my mom started working and she started working different shifts and my dad retired and he started working in a casino and was working different shifts. So things kind of, I wouldn't say fall, fell apart, but it just, it was much different than, um, being in like the Nebraska environment. Um, but yeah, the, the cons are, is that every time you make friends, you end up having to leave them. And I remember when I moved to Las Vegas, my best friend, who is still currently my best friend, when we started hanging out, one of somebody found out I was a military brat and they were like, oh, don't get too close to her because she's going to leave. <laughs> 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 which was like, that's sad. <laughs> um, which I didn't end up leaving because my dad retired there. So it's, it turned out okay. But yeah, it's, that that's probably the biggest con is, is making friends and getting close to people and then having to leave. Um, and then also changing that the environment, especially if you liked something. So like going from Nebraska where I really loved being there to Las Vegas, which was a big change and, you know, something, a, a different type of lifestyle to get used to. Yeah. So, well, what about the actual, yeah. you know, the, the environment? I'm, I'm born and bred in England, and now we live in Florida. Both of those countries are very green, especially the UK. Um, and I lived in, as I said, Southern California for a few years. And, you know, it, basically that's desert. And I'm sure Vegas is, is a very similar kind of topography. So did you, after leaving Nebraska, kind of miss green and, you know, fresh air, things like that? I I did. So... I remember distinctly when we moved to Las Vegas, it was in the middle of the summer. And I remember this incident where we had a, a garage door that the lock was on the outside. So you had to have an actual metal lock. Um, and you put it through the little holes and, and locked it that way. And I remember grabbing the lock and it was so hot. <laughs> I burned my hand. And that was the moment I was thinking, what the heck? What did we move into? <laughs> we literally <laughs> moved to hell. Um, yeah, just, you know, how hot it was in Vegas and and moving away from Nebraska that had the four seasons and you had a true winter and fall and 
all of that. Yeah, it was it was a big shock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. A lot of different reasons. <laughs> now, obviously, so. you know, we're going to talk about all the international travel that you did, you know, once you're in the service. Um, but I'm curious, if you are a military child born in a different country, do you have the opportunity for citizenship in that country if you decided to? Since I was born on the Air Force Base, and that base is considered part of the, you know, U.S. territory, I guess, um, I don't know if I, if I had the option to become a Filipino citizen and I wasn't really interested in becoming one or I haven't been interested in becoming one. So I never looked into it. So I'm not sure what the rules are with that. Yeah. That's interesting. I have to find that out. Um, all right. Well, you mentioned some of the sports that you did when you were younger, obviously you ended up in the military. So, um, you know, what level did you play athletics or play sports? Should I say? So I, I dabbled in, um, soccer and gymnastics and just kind of did the, you know, I was, I guess, pretty average. I never competed in any of those. My big sport was tennis and I competed, um, played in junior tournaments. I was ranked in the juniors in Las Vegas. And I really thought that was going to be my pathway into college. Um, but ended up kind of screwing up and high school and got kicked off the tennis team <laughs> my junior year so um that that completely derailed me off of that that path so I ended up having to figure out my senior year what I was going to do because my dad had spent all of that money training for tennis and lessons and coaches and everything else and he was a little upset that I kind of screwed it up. And so he was basically like, when you're 18, you're figured out. <laughs> <laughs> now, had you got so, a burning desire for that sport, though? Or had you already kind of started tapering off and that's how you found yourself doing whatever it was that got you off the team? <laughs> um, no, I, I actually really loved it. I, I did, I feel like, get a little bit burned out um, as I became a teenager. But I did love it. I mean, I didn't. I don't think at that point I trained hard enough to, to become pro or anything like that. But I, I do think I had a pretty good shot to at least get some kind of a, a college scholarship out of it. Um, but no, it's, I, I looked forward to all the, the matches and traveling to the different schools and playing, you know, different people. And I love the tournaments. I love the competitive aspect of it. I, I, definitely needed the motivation to do the practicing part <laughs> which I think everyone kind of has a problem with so um but yeah no it's it's great and I I still as an adult compete and I play in different leagues around the, the city so interesting yeah. yeah it's funny seeing the sport of tennis advertising through COVID and saying you know kind of like this, this <laughs> is their time to shine like hey we already social distance so come play tennis <laughs> Yeah, but it's actually funny because my tennis club here, it shut down for a while. And then when they were reinstating people to come back, and this wasn't just to my club, but this was kind of a, the tennis rules was you had to bring your own balls and you weren't supposed to touch anyone else's, you know, tennis balls or whatever. And it was just <laughs> it was kind of ridiculous. So 
<laughs> I mean, it is. It's crazy. I mean, you see, you know, some of the, I mean, MMA, perfect example, you know. I mean, now they've got around it. They're swabbing everyone and, you know, but yeah, I do a, a stunt show at the moment, my little side gig, and we have to wear masks oh. while we're doing the stunt show. Now, we sweat and bled all over each other in the rehearsals and that was fine. <laughs> But God yeah. forbid we actually breathe near each other, you know. So, yeah, it's it's a very strange time that we're looking at at the moment. Yeah, don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, let, well, let's let's. I mean, again, not not you know, not looking for one particular um, extreme because I think the extremes are what's stopped progress and actually us getting through this. You know, it's the two sides of giving the microphones and the middle people are kind of just wanting to get on with things. But what has been your experience the last year with you having, you know, a pretty solid medical background? My experience as far as... As just, you know, as a medical professional, I mean, we'll get into obviously when you responded, you know, um, yeah, as, as an actual responder with COVID, but for your own personal life, how has how has it impacted you and you know what have been what have been your observations with the medical knowledge that you have of again that this be very fair the the things you've seen that have been good and the things you've seen that you think could have been done better so i you know it's funny i mean everyone's pretty passionate about this topic but medical people in particular are very passionate about it and they seem to be you know either one or the other you know, with, with their um, opinion with everything. Um, as far as it impacting my life, it, it hasn't, it, I, I don't really feel a whole lot of difference. I'm, I'm kind of a hermit anyway. I don't really, I'm an introvert, so I don't like to go out and be around people all the time. So as far as my personal life, I don't feel like it's really affected anything. Um, you know, job wise, I'm, I am in the medical field, so it hasn't affected me financially. And I think a lot of people in the medical field or who are essential forget that there are people out there who have lost their businesses and lost their livelihood. And it happens pretty much overnight and they don't seem to comprehend that and what that must feel like. Um, so that, that angers me a little bit. And my whole stance on it has, I, I, I'm, I'm a skeptic at heart. And when this all started, I, I was very like, what's going on? <laughs> Especially when the, the toilet paper craze happened. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I really started getting concerned because I was like, I don't understand why this is happening like this. Um, I wasn't real, real concerned when it first started. And, you know, probably like everybody else is kind of thinking like, okay, this is just a really bad flu type of illness. Um, I was at SHOT Show last year and right after SHOT Show, and I know a lot of people get sick after SHOT Show, but I, I, I had gotten what I thought was the flu and it seemed a little bit worse than when I've gotten it before, but you know, it was about three or four days in bed and then up and doing my thing again. And I'm not, I don't know if I had COVID or if it was just the flu, but I suspect that it, you know, the possibility that it could have been COVID. Yeah. Um, that's, Cause that's an international attendance there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's very large and we're all close together. And I mean, definitely for it to be spread at that event, but you know, again, the whole time I'm just thinking, okay, it was, you know, it's, it's maybe a bad flu or flu like, and then we went into the end of February, beginning of March. And that's when everyone started freaking out about the toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> 
and tampons, which I was like, what is happening right now? <laughs> and ammunition. Let's not forget ammunition. You can shoot COVID. <laughs> well, yeah, that, yeah, that's, oh my gosh, yes. Um, yeah, so I was really mystified with one, just like, okay, if you really are in survival mode, why are you raiding the toilet paper pile? <laughs> like, that makes no sense to me. So I don't know where, I still am wondering where that came from, but you know, once that started happening and then they started talking about, you know, closing and shutting down, I, I don't know, I started getting really concerned and then, you know, the whole mask thing. And I had been saying, and you know, I have a a little bit of a social media presence. And so I talked about it a little bit. And one of the things is the masks. And I've said, I'm like, you know, putting a t-shirt over your face is not going to protect you (laughs) from a virus. Um, my whole stance on that has been, if you are going to mandate a mask requirement, it should be the proper one, you know, for the, the size of the particles of the virus. And to me, when you have no standard and people are just doing whatever they want and you see some celebrities wearing yarn masks, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, I'm just like, this isn't protecting you. And to me, it gives you a false sense of security. If you're not, if you don't understand medicine or you don't understand, you know, viruses and bacteria and that type of thing that you think a piece of cloth over your face is going to protect you. And I've been saying, if we actually have a a very deadly virus, then, and people think that they're protected by their (laughs) t-shirt, then there are going to be a lot of dead people around. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's hard, you know, in our professions, because we know, as you said, you know, what a respirator is, what an N95 is, and you have the fit tests. I mean, there's a whole process behind right. them. And, you know, one of the, I had an observation I talked about a little while ago. We're very lucky, I think, in the US where we don't, we're not exposed to cigarettes very much anymore versus, you know, 50 years ago. And I was at one of the theme parks where I work, uh, but this time just with my family visiting. And from, God, it must be like 25 meters away. I smelt smoke and there was a smoking area, you know, again, like I said, 25 meters away. And it kind of hit me. I'm like, so this is ambient. These molecules are definitely larger than a virus. And I smelt it from, you know, half of an Olympic pool away. So that in itself, and this was the mask that was issued to me by that, that, you know, stunt show as well. So it wasn't like a, you know, really crappy mask, but that's what I've been saying too. It's not about poo-pooing masks it's like you said when you have an understanding of the science behind it yeah if i sneeze that mask is still going to suppress it a bit but there are so many more powerful conversations about improving people's health rather than just letting them off the hook saying we'll slap something over your face and we'll call it good right and and my you know my question to some of these medical professionals is if this virus was let's say ebola would you still be giving that advice? <laughs> That's a good point. You know what I mean? So it's like, why is it okay for this one? Because you know, you know, the survival rate is very high um, versus something that is deadly. And I don't think they would be giving the same advice to, yeah, go ahead and go out in your mask. Um, so that's been my issue with that. And, you know, I get, whew, I get a lot of haters and trolls <laughs> saying like, well, you think it's fake and you don't think masks work. And I said, no, I've never said that. <laughs> you actually read what I say. I said there needs to be a standard if you're going to mandate anything, because without a standard, you're going to get people who, you know, if you're not in the medical field, you don't know better, right? So you're taking the advice of, of 
quote unquote, the professionals and the subject matter experts. And, you know, they're trying to follow along with that. And I, again, personally, I'm like, you're putting people's lives at risk when you say this is going to protect you from whatever virus. That's my opinion. So, and, you know, I, I really do think, you know, at some point, Mother Nature is going to get pissed at everything that's going on. And, you know, we there the potential to have a very deadly virus outbreak is, you know, high, I think. And in that case, you're going to have people who think, you know, these types of masks are going to protect them. So, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. I think that, you know, the a parallel that I've talked about before is, how many people have and this isn't again i'm not i'm not trying to be negative towards these people but it's just a reality in healthcare the term is healthcare how many morbidly obese doctors and nurses give wellness advice to patients oh you need to take the statin this you know hypertensive you know medication and you have to take a step back and go the person who's given me this advice is that someone who i inherently have trusted up to this point and in this last year we're being asked to trust politicians and drug companies, neither of which are yeah. known, you know, overall for their <laughs> ethics and honesty. So you wonder why people are skeptical. <laughs> I know. And that's what really gets me is how many people think the government is really trying to protect them and help them. And I'm like, where, I mean, you know, and I've worked for the government for you know, almost 24 years and I know better. <laughs> I know you're not, you're not the priority, you know, so um, most people, you know, tend to mistrust the government too. So why all of a sudden they, you know, full on believe everything that's coming out of their mouths? I have no idea. It's the whole say the whole thing has just been mystifying to me with, you know, everything that's going on. So yeah, well, I think it's frustrating for us because we have this different lens, whether it's a military lens, a first responder lens. You know, we we see a lot of things that most people don't see. So it's well, I think it's more exasperating. When you're looking around, going, why is <laughs> why is everyone you know acting in this certain way? But we forget that we we've seen behind the curtain. We've seen you know right. the reality, and it's not again. It's neither of those two extremes. Isolation will definitely slow the spread. Masks will definitely stop spray from a sneeze going you know as far. But right. you know overall wellness, you know daylight, um, mental good health cleaning up right. the what we put and spray and inject into our food, those will all make giant differences too, but that's not in the conversation at all. Right. And if you talk about, you know, you, you steer the conversation that way, it's, it's people just Heresy. don't agree with that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it is. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's, I, I just don't understand this full on trust with the government all of a sudden. So. Right. Well, that's a good you know, segue. <laughs> so speaking of the government, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you then, but but oh, let's no, let's uh, let's hear about your journey into the military then. So you were, you know, on this professional, well, at least, you know, college level tennis route. So, you know, at 18 years old, what did that journey look that and look like, excuse me, that ended up in the military? So 18 years old really didn't know what direction to go. And, you know, my dad's kind of like, eh, you're on your own. So decided to go down to the recruiter's office. And I, I had the intention to join the Air Force. Because um, that's kind of what I knew a little bit with my dad. And I went to the Air Force recruiting office. And he kind of was like, eh, 
you know, I'm about to go to lunch, was, was really not that interested in talking. I thought it was interesting because they're recruiters. And I thought, you know, they would jump on top of me like, oh, yeah, come on in. Um, yeah, I wasn't that interested. So in the same building, you had the Marine Corps and the Army and the, the Navy. And so I walked down the hallway and the Marine Corps recruiter was like, hey, how are you? And I was like, uh, I'm good. <laughs> Kept walking. <laughs> <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> um, and then I saw the Navy guys and they were super friendly. They were like, come on in. And so got to chatting with them and uh, yeah, decided to join the Navy. I actually hadn't discussed it with my parents at that point. And what's funny is my dad had always said, if you know, better not join the military. <laughs> That's, you know, I, I'm not really sure why he was so against it other than, you know, it's he hated the politics of the military and that's I think kind of what influenced him to say that to us. He just didn't want that for us, uh, my brother and I, and we both ended up joining, but um, yeah, he, I, I joined or I signed the paperwork and made a, an appointment to go to the MEP station, which is where you go for your physicals. And they flew me to San Diego to do that. And I joined came back, put the letter on my dining room table. Um, my dad was working night shift at the time. So when he got home, that's what he saw. <laughs> <laughs> and was not very happy with me. And so, uh, yeah, I ended up taking off. That was before the summer, right, right after I graduated. And I went left for big camp in the fall. And was your initial goal to go in and be a corpsman? It actually wasn't. So I joined to do air crew rescue swimmer um, and as an AW and in the Navy, that's aviation warfare. Um, what I liked about it was the whole, the helicopters and flying part of it. So I, I joined for that job and I went to boot camp and I never was the most physically fit person in the world. <laughs> Um, I mean, I played, I was athletic and I played tennis and I did all that, but I just, I wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to go run four miles or whatever. I hated running and I wasn't big on like doing weights or, you know, pushups and sit-ups or anything like that. So when I got to boot camp, that program, the rescue summer program is considered one of the special programs. So you had to pass a physical fitness test to, to be able to go to that school. And I failed in the push-up part of it in boot camp. <laughs> so I did the swim and I did um, the sit-ups and all that. And the push-up part, I had to, when you do your push-ups, they put a hand underneath your chest and you have to touch it every time. Not a fist, but a hand. And I had done the number of push-ups I needed to do, but I, the guy who was counting for me, who was a SEAL, said that I didn't go down far enough. Um, on some of them. So he ended up failing me, which meant that I had to go reclassify and find another job. So um, the Corman thing happened to be open and I was like, oh, okay, guess I'll give that a shot. So yeah, that's how I ended up there. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, then walk me through that. So, you know, at that point you had no medical training? No, I had no medical training. Um, so I went to went through boot camp and then I had to go to core school. So boot camp was in Great Lakes, Illinois, which is right, you know, up there near Michigan, very cold. Um, 
there were two locations for core school that was San Diego and Great Lakes. And I was really hoping for San Diego, but I learned that was kind of my first lesson is whatever you want, the military usually gives you the opposite. So I asked for San Diego. Another girl asked for the Great Lakes location because she was from Chicago and they gave her San Diego and me Great Lakes. <laughs> she just swapped IDs and gone with it. I know. That's, <laughs> you would think, right? But um, so, yeah, so I walked across the street from boot camp to core school. Um, it's pretty miserable because, again, this is all in like the dead of winter and spent another three months in that area for core school. And then my first duty station was in Florida uh, near Pensacola. And it was just a regular clinic, branch medical clinic, is what we call it. Um, and it's where I ended up getting my feet wet. I ended up getting qualified as an EMT um, and just did various things throughout the, the clinic. And from there, I wanted to do something different. And I found out about search and rescue. I'd, I actually didn't even know that was a thing for Corman. And search and rescue Corman. Um, become air crewmen and you end up, you know, in helicopters. And so I found out about that and I was like, oh, I really want to do that. That's kind of what I originally joined for. And so I asked my career counselor, I said, hey, you know, I want to put in an application for this. And she came back and she was like, oh, well, females can't do this. And I could, you know, this was 97 at this point. And I was kind of like, well, why can't, why? <laughs> it's not combat. So, you know, it's search and rescue. I don't really understand why females can't do it. And this is, this is where I always tell people, don't take no for an answer. I could have easily just taken her word because this was her job. She was supposed to know all the instructions. And had I taken her answer, I, I don't even know where I'd be today. Um, but I, I challenged it and I asked her to go back and look at the instruction and make sure that it actually said, no females can join. And so she did and came back and says, well, it doesn't say they can't, but there, there are no females in this community. And I was like, well, that doesn't mean you can't <laughs> join, <laughs> which I probably at that point should have thought about that. And like, okay, there, there's probably a reason why there aren't females in this community. But it's good not to think but about it though and just say, all right, I'll be the really first one. Is. I, I mean, I do like, you know, I've, I've done so many different things where I've, I've just kind of jumped in head first and, then thought about it later. And, and had I thought about it before, I probably wouldn't have done it. So um, yeah, it is, you know, in a, a sense, good to be like that, I guess. But I, again, wasn't the fittest. And, you know, even at my first duty station, I wasn't going to the gym every day or running or anything like that. And I get to air crew school. Well, I got accepted. And then I get to air crew school. And that was my first little rude awakening of I probably should be in better shape than I am. <laughs> so, you know, it was pretty physical. And, and, and most people would say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But when you go from not doing a whole lot to now you're running every single day and you're running in formation and you're you know doing calisthenics every day and you're in the pool and all this stuff, you know, it's it was a lot. <laughs> but ended up getting through that. And my first, the, the duty station I chose was China Lake. And when I was first told about being a search and rescue corpsman, I only knew them to be over water. 
And when you're over water, the rescue swimmer goes down for the patient and then you stay in the helicopter. And once the patient comes up, that's when you start doing your medical care. Um, because at that point, you don't have to be a rescue swimmer to be a search and rescue corpsman. Most people don't realize that, but it's, yeah, it's, the rescue swimmer part is usually the crewman. And so again, over water, you stay in the helicopter. Well, I chose China Lake, which was over land. And being over land, the corpsmen were the ones who go down for the patient. So you have to get rappel qualified. Even though helicopters have always been, you know, I, I loved them and wanted to fly in them, I'm terrified of heights. So when I got there and the guy I was working with, you know, the first thing he says is like, oh, we got to send you down to Camp Pendleton for rappel school. I was like, oh, no, 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 I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> And he was like, what do you mean? And I'm like, no, I, I just, no, they didn't say that when I signed up for this. And he was like, well, over land, the corpsmen go down. So you have to be repel qualified. And I'm like, oh, well, no, <laughs> not going. And he was like, okay, then you're not doing this job. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going. <laughs> so yeah, I went down to repel school and the first one off the, they have you do it off the tower first. And I completely, my legs were shaking so bad. The entire tower was shaking. <laughs> and then uh, the guy below was like, hurry up, come down. <laughs> like, I don't want to go. But, you know, after the first one, that was fine. And then ended up going, um, we you know, went on the helicopters and repelled off of that. And then I was, I was good. And I actually loved it. I love repelling to this day. I still love it. So that was fine. Isn't it crazy how, because I had the same thing. I, I was fearless and something happened in my early teens. I still to this day can't you know, think what it was, but I went from being fireman heights to absolutely terrified for you know, well into my very early 20s. And it actually was when I became a firefighter that I was forced to climb the aerial and basically just get over it. And then once I did, yeah. I was fine. And I you know, never had an issue since. So it's crazy how that fear of something versus the actual thing itself you know the, the, what you what you perceive as fear and then when you just right. do it for the first time you're like well what the hell was I worried about yeah which I mean I'm still you know I'm still scared of heights but yeah I there's just when you repel I, I guess you just you're not really thinking about it as much or you're not looking down so I mean you are kind of looking down but you're not really focused on the ground yeah so it's, it's a little, yeah, it's different. But if I, if I stood on like a second floor balcony in a hotel or something, like it freaks me out to be near the, the, the rail. So I still have that weird feeling of <laughs> the heights being, or, or even like if I go hiking and if I'm with people and you know, you know, there's some daredevils out there that like to walk along the edge or whatever. It freaks me out. Like I hate it. <laughs> I know you're one of those people. I don't want to be anywhere around you. So um, yeah, I don't know. It's crazy, but I, yeah. So then I had to get qualified, uh, in other areas. So it was a, it was a pretty long qualification process and I was stationed there with a couple of guys. One guy, you know, to this day we're, we're friends. Um, he kind of took me under his wing and helps me out. The other guy hated me, didn't want me around. Um, didn't want me in the community. And it was just, you know, it was more of, I was a female and I was kind of invading their <laughs> community. So he made the qualification process pretty miserable. And um, I feel like he set me up for failure a lot to try to get me to fail. But uh, my personality is very much, okay, well, if you're going to 
you know, try to make me fail, I'm going to try harder. So, um, yeah, I ended up making it through and it's still one of my biggest accomplishments to date. So very proud of that time in my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, like you said, again, because you didn't listen to that woman at the, the office, you know, I think that's a very powerful thing. Yeah. I, I was told as a young man, as, as a school kid that I was colorblind and I could never be a firefighter or a pilot, anything. And it took years and years for me to have the epiphany that I can see color. And so the moment I challenged it was when I became a firefighter. And it's, you know, how many people out there have, have been stopped in their tracks? Because as we said earlier, someone that we're supposed to trust has told us something that was completely wrong. And we took it as, you know, gospel and never carried on. Exactly. And that's, I mean, yeah, that's the biggest thing is, is never take no for an answer, you know, challenge it. If you really want it, you know, most of the time there's ways around it. So, you know, keep that in mind. Absolutely. All right. Well, then what did, what are the next few years that like up to that point, you'd been in the hospital setting. So did you deploy after that or did you stay domestically for a while? I stayed domestic. So the search and rescue at that point, we didn't really have any deployment billets. We were mostly stationed SAR, which meant we were supporting the whatever base that we were on. Um, usually it was a base that had some type of air asset. And so we were supporting if any of those pilots crashed or anything like that. Um, so after that, I had to pick orders and I really wanted to stay in the Southern California area. So um, the only thing that was open was an instructor billet at rescue summer, the surface rescue summer school in San Diego. And at the time I was only an E4 and instructors were required to be E5 and above, but it popped up as a hot bill on our, um, our list too, when you pick orders. And that means it, it should be one of the first ones filled, but for some really odd reason, nobody was choosing it in my community. My community was small, but you would think that San Diego instructor billets, usually pretty, you know, cool billet. Um, every month it kept popping up and that was the only one I would apply for. And then I kept getting told, well, no, you're too junior to, to do this. I'm like, well, I'm just going to keep going. I get, you know, this is, this is my second step of where I was like, I'm, a, I'm not going to take no for an answer. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just kept, I wouldn't apply for anything else. I just kept applying for that job. And finally, because I think it was probably after three months because nobody else was choosing it. The uh, head of like the education department at that, um, that duty station ended up calling me and he's like, Ugh. he's like, well, you're the only one who's applying for this. So <laughs> I figure I'd call you in the interview. <laughs> So yeah, we had a discussion and I guess he felt like I would be okay for the job. So he ended up approving it. And um, I went to San Diego, went through instructor school and then got to rescue summer school. And once again, I was the only female <laughs> and um, they had the option to be able to go through rescue summer school as well. Cause I was there for the medical part of it. So we were there to screen the physicals and to be the safety on the pool deck and all that stuff and make sure, you know, in case someone got hurt, we would be there to, to treat them. But we had the option to also go through the rescue summer school and become a rescue summer ourselves. And I took that option and it took me a couple of tries to get in. Um, cause you have to pass, it was the same test I had to pass in boot camp, and I finally, um, passed it there and then went through four weeks of that school, which, whew, <laughs> that was a 
another very challenging school. <laughs> we actually have one of the highest attrition rates. People don't realize that. Uh, we had one class where I don't remember exactly how many we started with student-wise. I want to say, because our average was anywhere between 15 to 30 students for per class. And we ended up graduating one student oh, wow. in that class. <laughs> that yeah. is a high attrition rate. <laughs> we had so that because we always do a class picture, and the class picture were all of the instructors and the one student. <laughs> so, <laughs> so very interesting, but yeah, people don't realize that we we have like around probably a fifty, sixty per or forty, fifty percent attrition rate. So, um, it was very difficult, and then you know being the only female in that class and having to run information with these guys who were. PT studs and you know their jog is my sprint the whole time <laughs> and you're running three to four miles it was and then you get in the pool and get your ass handed to you for the next four hours so yeah it was it was quite a quite a course I remember the first weekend after my first week of the class I could barely even get out of bed and <laughs> to go to the bathroom I <laughs> just like every part of my body hurt um but yeah it was it was good and you know, a couple of challenging points in that school. I had, we had to do this buddy swim. It was an 800 meter buddy swim, which you were dragging someone along with you for 800 meters. And the instructors were kind of messing with me. So they gave me, usually they try to pair you up with somebody of equal body weight and height. And they gave me the largest student and the biggest student. He was all muscle. So he just sunk. <laughs> And when you're doing your buddy toe, you do a side stroke and then you're holding on to your, you know, quote unquote survivor and you have to use your leg. So you only have your one arm because your other arm, you're holding your, your survivor and then you have your legs to kick. Well, he was he, just, his weight was all on my top leg. So I was down to my one arm and my bottom leg <laughs> to try to do this 800 meters and it's t it's a timed evolution, and I I ended up finishing, but I finished over the time, so it was a failure. And so they gave you one chance to redo it, and I redid it. I think that was like a Friday, and so I redid it on a Monday. And the instructors gave me somebody that was, you know, a guy that was more around my height, and I ended up shaving like I think like six or seven minutes off my time. Yeah, that's a half mile tow is a, is a hell of a tow. I used to lifeguard for years and I, I can't imagine doing it for 800 meters. Is that with fins or no fins? It's with fins. Yeah, it's snorkel and um, mass snorkel and fins. Yeah, yeah it was it was, it was was pretty brutal. Um, and he was like, you know, if you want to quit, because once, once we went over the time, we, I, was, you know, I knew I was going to fail. And he was like, you know, we can get out of the pool now. I was like, nope. I'm going <laughs> like, we're going to finish this shit. I don't care. And I was like, you know, in the real world, no, you're not getting timed, you know? So it's more important that I can finish this in my mind. So yeah, we, we kept going. I was the only person in the pool left, but um, yeah, when I redid it, it was, I shaved like, I want to say like six minutes. It's so much time that the instructor was like, how did you, you know, in two days shave that much time off. I was like, well, when I don't have a rock sitting on me. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have the Terminator to drag. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I was like, and why would it like, I, I didn't purposely fail before. So yeah, this is legit. <laughs> like you're sitting there with a the damn stopwatch. So yeah. Um, yeah, that was one of the, the more challenging times, but you know, got through that and finished it. And this is, 
this is where I always say, don't let, don't be so intimidated or scared to do things because you don't think you have the ability because a lot of this stuff is mental. You know, it's, it's all about your mindset. So if you believe you can get through it somehow, then just give it a shot. You know, the worst thing that happens is, yeah, you fail, whatever. Well, and and learn from it, go on. So adding on to that, so just, you know, following your, your path up to that point, like you said, you know, school level athletics and then into the military and but you have this large attrition rate all the way through your journey so far there are a lot of people didn't make you know search and rescue it didn't make rescue swimmers so when when you look back how do you attribute your mindset what gave you that thing that a lot of people didn't have i really just always had the belief that i could do it it just i never it never crossed my mind that i was going to fail um, I don't know. I just, I, 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 and I don't know where that comes from because growing up, I wasn't like a huge confident child that could do anything. I mean, you know, I was very, like I say, average. Um, but I just, I, I don't know. I go into these things and I never think about the possibility of, of failing. So if I'm having a hard time in an area, I just hit it harder. Um, like when I was doing the search and rescue stuff, I, you know, again, physically, I, I needed to work on that. And so I was in the gym every single day. And I had to learn about the helicopters, which I knew nothing about. And the one guy would always try to make me look stupid in our, our training and, you know, call me out on questions that he knew I didn't know at the time. <laughs> so I just took books home with me and I studied harder. <laughs> it just, it never occurred to me that I'm going to fail. Like, I don't know this or I can't do this. Like, can't was just never in my vocabulary. Um, it might have been, a, you know, a false sense of confidence <laughs> that I had, but I really do believe that that's what kept me going and got me through a lot of that. So, yeah, I mean, you just have to, you have to believe that you can do it. And if you hit some obstacles then figure out how to get around them, you know, there's, to me, it's like, there's always a way. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, just one quick question before we move on, you know, chronologically. When I think of rescue swimmer, I think of the Coast Guard. Is the the rescue swimmers themselves, are they attached to the Coast Guard? Or are they actually a Navy team? So these are, so Navy has rescue swimmers. It's the same curriculum um, as the Coast Guards there. So if you watch the movie, what was it? The Guardian, I think, uh, with Kevin Costner. Yeah, it's the, it's the same um, curriculum that they use. Okay, beautiful. So which came next? Was it Afghanistan or Haiti? Nope, I didn't do any of that until I got commissioned. So after rescue summer school, I was at the point, I loved what I was doing enlisted, but I knew if I ever decided to get out at any point, it didn't really translate over into the civilian sector because search and rescue on the civilian sector is usually either volunteer or it's um, the sheriff's departments or fire. And I didn't, I knew I didn't want to start over in like one of those departments um, to get to that. And even then, you know, search and rescue isn't guaranteed in those jobs. So I was starting to think about, okay, what, what can I do, you know, in case I do end up getting out that I can cross over into the civilian sector. And the Navy has commissioning programs and one of them is the nursing program. So I applied for that commissioning program 
And I ended up getting accepted, which meant that I, the Navy sent me to school to finish my nursing degree. I was doing my prerequisites while I was active duty, but then I had to go to um, finish the rest of my nursing degree. And um, the program allowed me to just basically go to school for the next two and a half years, which was really nice. <laughs> I was still active duty, but my job was to go to school every day. Um, so after that, got commissioned, got my nursing degree, and then came back to San Diego because I, I got my degree in Las Vegas um, because the nursing school is pretty easy to get into and it was a faster program. Um, ended up coming back to San Diego for my first duty station at the Naval Hospital and worked on a couple of the floors there. I was in the oncology unit is where I started out and then um, moved down to a general surgery clinic and did the conscious sedation um, for our endo endoscopic clinic in the back. Um, and then I transferred to Camp Pendleton. So now I'm two years in as a nurse and I got put into the ICU. And this is during the time where if you were a critical care nurse or an ER nurse, you were getting deployed pretty often. And so I was in the ICU, which was considered a critical care area. And I got there in October and I didn't have much training in the ICU. Um, one, because Camp Pendleton Hospital is not that big and we don't have really a high acuity of patients there. And two, because I hadn't been there very long before Haiti happened. So Haiti happened that January. And I remember getting a phone call from my division officer. I was supposed to come in at night. So I was sleeping all day and I wake up to all these phone calls. And she says, um, you've been keeping up with the news, right? I was like, yeah. And she's like, okay, well, um, don't come into work tonight. Come tomorrow and we're going to send you to Haiti. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> she was like, like, like Haiti tomorrow? <laughs> Like, she was like, Haiti. yeah, yeah, and I'm like, the the country, uh, okay. <laughs> like thinking in my head, like this maybe can't work that fast. Like they're not going to send a whole surgical unit to Haiti in a day. Um, but yeah, so I, I come in the next morning, and we have a whole brief on what's going on, and we ended up we didn't end up leaving that day, but we left the next day. So surprisingly, they got us all together, and we got on a plane and took off to Haiti which was an interesting, you know, that, that, and honestly, that was my first time out of the USA bubble. Um, so it was big culture shock on how other people live in third world countries. <laughs> um, and it was a big shock on the organization of the military and how fast they can get people there. Uh, I would say it was, it was pretty disorganized. Um, and started thinking about, you know, God, if we were like, this is a, a peacetime effort and it's humanitarian effort. If, if people were actually shooting at us, <laughs> that would get real interesting with this type of situation. So, um, yeah, it was, it's pretty crazy though. That country was very devastated by that earthquake and we were taking in survivors, the, the traumatic survivors and, we were bringing them onto the amphibious warship that I was, that they had put us on. And uh, this ship had a pretty robust OR and ICU and, and ward. And so we were 
bringing them on, doing surgery, and then recovering them and then taking care of them until we could get them off the ship into the country, either, you know, back to where their homes were or with another organization that was there on the ground. And what ended up happening was rumors started spreading throughout the country that if you go to the ships, they're going to cut your, your limbs off. (laughs) (laughs) So then the local population were terrified of us because they thought we were just bringing them on to like cut them up in pieces, I guess. Um, which we weren't cutting. I mean, we did have to do some amputations, but that was, you know, due to their injuries, obviously, but they didn't know any better. And, you know, we had a big language barrier. And so, yeah, it was, that made it more difficult to take care of the patients because they were, they didn't want us anywhere near them. I remember one girl had a huge X fix on her leg. It's all metal. And she like ended up kicking me because <laughs> she didn't want me to come near her. So yeah, it was, that was an interesting time. Yeah, well, they're, um, they're very, um, I don't want to use the word superstitious, because it almost sounds kind of condescending, but their voodoo is, is embedded yeah. in the Creole country, uh, culture, yeah. isn't it? Yes, very much so. Yeah. And I mean, I think superstitious is the correct word. So yeah. And, you know, when, once that started spreading out, it, it kind of got difficult to bring them on because they really thought that we were um, doing bad things to them. So. Now, what were some <laughs> of then, the... You know, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me interrupt. Okay. Well, no, I was just going to say, and then, you know, they would see their, the, the people coming off the ships and some of them did have amputations. So then, you know, of course they're like, oh my gosh, they are cutting <laughs> their legs off and stuff. So, yeah. So when that happened, I was at um, a fire department here in Florida and, you know, we're watching from the U.S. and, you know, Florida, we're very close. I mean, you know, Haiti's not that far away at all. And so, you know, I was I was trying, I emailed um, our administration, like, hey, I speak French, you know, somewhat. And, you know, I was a medic by that point. You know, are you sending people over? And they actually put out a list and I signed up and everything. And then that was it. That's as far as it got. And what I saw from a, you know, civilian firefighter looking at that is we sent some task force over from the civilian side, the fire side, and it seemed like, they pulled us all out, all our, you know, our profession out, while they were still finding viable, you know, people in in the collapses. So I found that very strange that that they you know, that the FEMA side was pulling aid out before what appeared to be, you know, the the point where no one you know was left to find. I mean, they were, they were still finding people. So I found that very weird. I don't know if you ever kind of got that story of aid being pulled back early from the military side. Um, I don't, so we were there, my group was there to augment the crew that was on the ship, um, for the surgical aspect of things. And we were only, we were there for three months. Um, I, because I was on the ship pretty much the whole time, I, I didn't really know what was going on, um, in the country and, and, you know, in regard to like how many people were still left or I do know at some point we were sending teams out to look for people because we were, you know, when we first got there, we had tons of patients. And then towards the end of us being there, it started to, um, you know, we started, I guess, I don't know if low on patients is the right word, but you know, we didn't have as many people coming. The patient <laughs> you know, <deficit>. you're, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the thing about medical people is like when we get sent somewhere, we want to work and we want to do stuff. And so we end up looking for work. <laughs> um, you know, because most of the time, like, especially in that situation where we're being pulled away from everybody and we're, we're out there, uh, we wanted to have purpose. So, 
um, when our patient patients started dwindling down, numbers started dwindling. We had teams that actually went out to look and make sure, you know, we weren't missing anybody and there weren't, uh, other patients out there. And so, um, you know, by the third month, it was kind of like, okay, well, we're, we're not seeing as many and the comfort was still in the area, which is the big, the large hospital ship. So we, I guess, felt comfortable at that point to pull our team out because, um, I guess we figured, you know, if there were any more survivors, the comfort could handle it. Now, what about from a medical point of view? Up, up to that point, you worked in the hospital and then, you know, you'd, you'd um, done the whatever interventions you'd done with the search and rescue side. Was it a kind of level up again when you were actually involved more in the emergency medicine side? When I went to Haiti? Yeah, so I, so I get to Haiti and... Well, before I left, when they said, you know, we're sending you, um, I was like, okay, well, what are, how are you, like, what capacity am I being sent as? And they're like, oh, a critical care nurse. And I'm like, well, I don't have the critical care training because <laughs> I've only been here a couple months and I haven't had all the, like, it's, you know, about a six month process to get qualified in critical care. And, you know, plus our patients at Pendleton, like we barely had any like really critical patients. So, uh, the head nurse was like, Oh no, it's okay. Because there'll be other critical care nurses that you can like, you'll be working with, you know, so you'll have somebody there for resource or whatever. Um, so I was like, okay, well that's, that's fine. As long as there are people there that I can bounce things off of or whatever. And so I get there and we have on that ship, we had a 15 bed ICU and there were only two of us that were actually like quote unquote critical care trained. So or two or three of us, I think, um, but they ended up putting me on nights and I was by myself as the only critical care. I had an ER nurse with me, but the ER nurses in the military don't have a whole lot of like vent experience because um, we don't have the acute, we're not trauma centers or anything. So we don't really have that acuity. And so it was me and an ER nurse <laughs> and I was like, I'm now in charge of 15 critical care patients. Oh, <laughs> this <God>. is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still a pretty new nurse because like I was only in my second year as being a nurse. So um, yeah, I was not really happy about that. And I was learning, you know, different drips and sedation, basically like with through books and on the computer that we had with really slow internet. So <laughs> it, was just, it was a very interesting time. <laughs> yeah. Trial by fire. Um, Oh, totally. And I, I just, you know, it's always that situation with me. Cause like even in search and rescue, you know, I remember like one of my first flights, they like, you know, had me do a short haul and I'm like hanging off this rope and I didn't really know what I was doing. And I'm like, this is like, why is this always the way with me? <laughs> it's literally like kick you off the cliff and figure it out. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was very, you know, very intimidating, intimidating environment. Um, but again, every time I get through something like that, it just, it builds my confidence and I kind of, you know, it sort of confirms that I can do whatever I situation I get put in or (laughs) put my mind to. So, um, yeah. And it's, it was good. It was a great learning curve. Um, and it was challenging, which again, my personality is, I, I, trend towards that type of thing so um it was it was a big accomplishment to make it through that 
I did get back and, you know, my head nurse was like, how'd it go? And I was I was a little angry with her and told her, like, you know, you, you probably really should know what you're putting people in, what environments you're putting them into before you make them go to those things. Because I don't know if everyone can get through that like that. It's it's pretty scary. So, yeah, but I did it. Um, again, at that time, we were getting deployed quite often and they were trying to if you had a deployment, they were trying to leave you alone for a year. And when I, when they gave me this assignment to Haiti, um, when I was talking to my division officer and it was the whole, like, you mean tomorrow, she said, you know, if you don't like fight this, if you just go, then this will count as your deployment regardless. Cause they didn't know how long we were going for it. So I was like, well, how long? And she was like, you know, just plan up to six months. Cause we're not sure. Um, <clears throat> so it ended up being three months. I come back and they then send me to the bigger hospital for my critical care training, which was funny because it's like, oh, now I get my training. <laughs> um, and I was supposed to be down at the bigger hospital for six weeks. And I think by the second week, my division officer calls me again. She was like, hey, uh, we have this tasker. <laughs> and I was like, well, you told me if I didn't argue the Haiti thing that I was good for a year. <laughs> yeah, I had my fingers crossed when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. She's like, well, it only ended up being three months. So it's not really a deployment. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You did say that regardless, because I was pulled away in 24 hours, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it was going to count. And she was like, well, we just don't have anybody else and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, Ugh. I was like, well, what is it? And she says, you know, we need you to go with the Marines to Afghanistan. And I was like, okay, when's, when's this happening? It was like within a couple of months. So I go on this, you know, go get attached to this unit and I, you're supposed to do a whole month workup. My workup ended up being in Okinawa. (laughs) So I go for a month to Okinawa to train. And then we were supposed to go with a Marine Corps unit from Okinawa, but that, that whole unit got cut from it. So my team gets sent back to California to get attached with one of the California units. And then we get, then we leave and um, we deployed for nine months with the Marines in Afghanistan. And that was, I mean, we were in Okinawa, learned that they get cut, get flown back after a month to California for four days and then around the world back to Afghanistan. So I literally went around the world in four days. <laughs> did you at least get air miles? I did not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I did not. Um, yeah. So then I'm with the Marines. I was part of a, what we call a damage control surgical team. So kind of like what I was doing on Haiti um, on the ship, but now on the ground with a Marine Corps unit. And we were in Helmand province. Um, and my team, we were kind of plussing up these different resuscitation teams that were spread out through that province. Um, we plus them up for the surgical asset part of it. And so they would send us to these areas that they thought would have a higher incidence of casualties. Um, and then we would kind of stage there and, and wait for casualties and, and such. So did that for, for nine months. And um, the interesting part of that whole process was I was supposed to be just on the ground with my team. The problem was, is we came up, you know, the, the military came up with this whole, we call it the role two asset. So when you have that surgical capability or the, the capability to resuscitate, you're now a role two, 
role one being at the you know point of injury. Um, so then you have the role two, where now you have a surgeon and you have the ability to uh, stop bleeding surgically if you have to. So, and our whole point was not to fix them. It was just to um, stabilize them yeah. on their way. Yeah. And we were doing this in, you know, tents or the structures that we could find, occupy, take over, and um, we would do these surgeries. The problem was, it was a great idea, you know, because they would push us more forward towards the fight. The problem was the transport back. And so at the time, um, intra-theater, dust-off was, was kind of the main people that were doing the transports. And the medics on dust off didn't have the critical care training part of it because once they, once we put our hands on the patient, they became not so much just a transport point of injury and get them back to wherever they became a critical care transport. So, um, because they would come out on events and, you know, getting blood and, and still being resuscitated and have to, you know, be on paralytics and sedation and all this different stuff. And so that's, you know, that level is a critical care trained paramedic or nurse or whatever. And the dust off medic would come to pick up the patients and they would be like, oh yeah, we, we don't do that. <laughs> Which happens exactly the same in the, the civilian world too. The medic will show yeah. up at a hospital for interfacility and then there'll be like 12 things attached to the patient and they're like, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, you know, that's exactly, and that's, and that's the right response with a medic, right? Because if you don't know how to, you shouldn't be accepting patients that you don't have the um, training to accept. So, but the problem was, is like, okay, well, who's going to transport them? And then they would look over at the nurse and be like, oh, hey, nurse, you know, random nurse, get on the back of the helicopter and fly the patient. And it's like, well, that's not how this works. (laughs) You really need some training for that. So, um, like in the civilian sector, when you fly on the helicopters, it's a pretty lengthy educational training process to become qualified. And yeah, they were just throwing us on the back of helicopters, um, not being part of crew. So we didn't even have the gear. So my first flight, and of course I volunteered because I was like, oh yeah, sure. <laughs> this sounds great. And then I get there and I'm like, what am I doing? This is terrible. <laughs> Why have I not learned my lesson by now? <laughs> yeah. You would think so, right? Um, no, I remember that first transport. It was at night too, and I had no ear. I thought the crew would bring me like ears or something I could communicate, nothing. Um, I had a little pen light between my teeth that I was using for my light, and I was still resuscitating my patient who had amputations and was still bleeding. And it was just, yeah, I just remember thinking, like, how did I get to this point? <laughs> what in my life have I done to get to this point? In my life? Um, <laughs> So I was at, at that point, I was at a combat outpost. So I was near Pakistan and like very, very small base and dust off wasn't there. So they came from another base, picked me up and my patient and they flew us back to the role three. And I even, you know, I started thinking, I was like, are they going to even, are they going to take me back? (laughs) How am I going to get back? And so the, one of the crewmen had a little, like a paper pad on his leg. So I grabbed his pen and I'm writing, like, you're going to take me back, right? And he looked at me, he's like, oh, yeah, sure, thumbs up, you know, like, okay, cool. So I had to go into the trauma tent to hand off my report. And as I'm giving a report, a helicopter flies away. (laughs) And the the doctor was like, was that your ride? (laughs) I was like, "Uh uh-huh. You could tell by look on your face. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, oh, that sucks. (laughs) Like, yeah. Does. Um, 
so yeah, so now I'm like in the middle of Helmand province at somewhere. I didn't even know what base they flew me to. I'm like, where are we? <laughs> where am I right now? And where am I in relation to where I just came from? Um, you know, I was like, well, how do I get back? And everyone's like, I don't know, like go up to the little ADAC and see if they have any flights going back there, I guess. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's great. Um, at this point, it was probably 11 o'clock at night, midnight. And me being stupid, didn't think about the fact that I might get stranded. So I'm just in a flight suit. I didn't bring any extra clothes. I didn't have any extra layers. <laughs> and I go up to where they have the helicopters flying out. And the guy was like, oh, I don't have anything going that way. He's like, just wait on the bench until I have something. And it's at this point, you know, we're going into fall, winter, and it's cold there. Like people don't realize it's, it's pretty, it's kind of like, the, it is like the desert. So, you know, where Vegas is super hot in the, the summer and then, at, you know, in the winter it's cold and it's the same type of pattern. And so I'm freezing my ass off because it's, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning and just waiting for something that was going back in that direction. And finally, I think around two or three in the morning, there was a 53 going that way. And he's like, Hey, you can get on the back of that. They're doing the supply run. So jumped on the back of that and went back. But, you know, I didn't really have the means to tell the people I was attached to where I was. <laughs> I was wondering, I was like, are they wondering where I am? <laughs> Do they even know I got here? Okay. So yeah, it was very interesting times. <laughs> no, that's crazy. And like you said, it, it illustrates the, you know, when, when you have something so big as the entire military complex, how the human elements can kind of fall behind between the cracks and it happens in, in the fire service too. Yep. All the time. Yeah. So I ended up doing a bunch of, of those transports. And of course, each time I learned, um, we ended up moving up to a different base where dust off was actually located. And the first thing I did was go over to them. I was like, if you guys ever leave me, <laughs> I tell you. but I got smart. I would bring the medic with, I like literally would grab the medic and be like, you're coming in with me because I knew they weren't going to leave him. <laughs> so bring an asset <laughs> yeah i was like you're coming in with me to give report and you're sick i'll freaking handcuff you if i have to <laughs> now what about you know you've gone you've you've uh you know been responded to haiti and then now you're you know in you know in a combat zone um one thing that i've observed in my career was after a while, like I've, I'm in black clouds. So, and I've talked about this on the podcast before. So I apologize to everyone listening that's heard this damn story lots of times. But, um, you know, I, I'm the person where if you go into cardiac arrest, you're not coming back. And I hope it's not because of my shitty medic skills. I hope that it's because it was a brain bleed. It was a GI bleed. You know, it was all these things that you just can't come back from. But when you go through school, okay, do this, you know, push these drugs and voila, the patient will come back. After a while, you realize that's kind of bullshit. That's the ideal unicorn version of it. But a lot of times, especially with what you're dealing with, traumatic arrests and, you know, and people bleeding out, the, the chances of survival are very low. So did you have a, a point where that inability to save started weighing on you a little bit? So if they, so if you look statistically, um, at that type of thing. If so, we were not point of injury, so we're we're roll two. And if they were able to make it to us statistically, the chances of survival went way up. So, pretty much all of my patients survived. Um, so we didn't have that point. If they were to die, they either had died on um, the battlefield 
or in transit to, uh, you know, right after that roll win thing. So, but if they were, if they were actually like, you know, like right at the point of death or dead, they wouldn't bring them to us. They would bypass us and go to the, the roll three. So what they were bringing us were the ones that were, um, viable most, yeah, most likely to, to, if we could stop the bleeding, we could save them. And so, yeah. What did you see? Were there any common denominators you saw that seemed to be working as far as those interventions in, you know, from the, between the battlefield and where you are that were giving these men and women the best chance? The best chance in, in any real type of traumatic scenario like that is blood. <laughs> um, you know, stopping the bleed and then giving them back blood. And that's, that was kind of our main purpose um, as a role too. And, you know, what you would like to do is stop the bleeding through non-invasive measures like your tourniquets and packing wounds and things like that. But what we were there for is if that didn't work or if it was a a core problem, um, we could go into the abdomen and the chest and look for where the bleeding was and then stop it that way. Right. Yeah, because that's that's something that's always been strange to me, you know, in medic school is, you know, when you look at what we do pre-hospital, mainly we're just pumping the trauma victim full of fluid, which is diluting the blood, but is not adding any, you know, any oxygen to that system. So it's a, a very strange thing because we feel like we're doing something, but a lot of times we're actually not. No, um, you feel like you're doing something because your numbers start to look better. But <laughs> yeah, in actuality, it's not. It's not good for the patient at all. And so if you do look at um, the way training is now trending towards, you know, not giving fluids unless they hit a certain like blood pressure, um, for the most part, you're probably hearing like around, you know, a systolic under 90, but I've seen literature where they're saying even now, like under 70, like, you know, you, you like can let it get to that point before you start pumping just regular, if you don't have blood. Um, but blood is, you know, they, one of the things is blood replaces blood best, right? So, <laughs> yeah. But the thing is we don't have in the civilian world is we don't know the blood type of the patient, which is, you know, obviously a, a challenge. Right. Um, yeah, there are some EMS agencies now adapting blood programs. Um, I don't know which one, I think a lot of the, the helicopter agencies are starting to, um, but that's, you know, when you don't know their blood type, you, that's like for us, even we, we do O, um, blood type or the low titer O. So, but I, I see now like a lot of the civilian sector are starting to adapt some of those, the military concepts or what we've learned on the, during OIF and OEF. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, Cause even, I mean, I've got a very short career, only been 14 years, um, and, uh, you know, when I was being taught in fire school in 03, uh, you know, tourniquet, we don't do it because the yeah. leg, leg will fall off, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. you know, and I now mean, and it's that's like where, the opposite. The, yeah. And that's, it's so funny because that's the era I came from. So I joined in 95 and that was like, you know, tourniquet's the last resort because they're going to definitely lose their limb if you put a tourniquet on. I mean, that's what we were told. And, um, from that to when I got out of nursing school to my first duty station, I actually remember having an argument with a corpsman who had been with division. And I should have known better because <laughs> he had been in the shit at that point because it was 2006. And 
he's talking about tourniquets and he's like, oh yeah, it's the first thing you do. And I'm like, no way. I was like, no, 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 no. You got it. Like, that's the last thing you do. You're, they're going to, you're going to, you know, make them lose their limbs. Blah, blah. He's like, no, he's looking at me like I'm stupid. And he's like, you're a nurse, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, but my thought process with the pre-hospital stuff had been, you know, back in the day when it, that's, that's what they told you. And so, yeah. And then realizing now that, you know, and having been in the environment and having used tourniquets and seeing how they work, you know, I had one of the, the, my ortho surgeon that was with us, he's like one of the godfathers of developing the, the rule two systems. And he was like, you know, you can leave tourniquets on for up to like even four hours, five hours, sometimes six, seven hours. So he's like, never be afraid to, to do that if it's, you know, you think they're going to bleed out. So, but it's also having a proper tourniquet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was going to ask you as well, because this is another almost urban legend if you think about it because when when you research spinal immobilization using the backboards that we've used in EMS for a long time from what I understand there's actually no research that shows that they work whatsoever it was one study you know right. way way back so in right. the military setting you know an environment where you truly have men and women exposed to you know horrendous trauma what is the use of immobilization in the field I mean, so now they're telling you, you know, they're, they're really trending away from it and, and having, you know, I'm an ER nurse as well. And when you guys bring patients in on a, a spinal board, the first thing we do is take them off. We clear them <laughs> um, because it's actually showing more damage to the patient being on a spinal board than, than not because the length of time that they're left on there and then the skin breakdowns and all that stuff is, is more detrimental to the patient. And like you say, it's not proving to do any good. So um, we just, we do the C collar. That's it. Right. Yeah. I think that's something I'm hoping that we're going to go towards because it's a pain in the ass to put them on there too. You know, and like you said, it's yeah. so uncomfortable for the patient. And actually, if they're strapped in, more often than not, the head stays where it is and the body moves all over the place when you're transporting it. So it's even worse than just sitting there with a the collar. I mean, it's horrendous. Or even just trying to get them, like you're saying, trying to get them on the spine, the spine board from, you know, certain situations. So like, I remember I was doing a ride along um, with an EMS or an ambulance in the civilian sector when I was a corpsman and we had to get these people out of a car and the woman was very large and trying to get her out of her seat and, you know, maneuver her to like keep it as straight as possible and all this stuff and have a spinal board like up against the car and all this. It was like, it was just terrible <laughs> instead of just having her and she was mobile so like, mm-hmm. just, had her just sit out. on the stretcher for god's sake <laughs> yeah exactly. so it was just, oh my god it took like four or five of us to get her out of there and yeah she could have literally probably just gotten up and done it herself so um yeah and then you're, you know you're putting the the, the providers at risk because we're you know putting our bodies in crazy positions to try to lift heavy people and it's you know not the proper lifting mechanisms and everything so yeah yeah it's fascinating because i mean even the the cpr you know when you're thinking about walker positions you know the cpr all the cardiac arrest patients that would be rushed to the hospital and you're doing this supposed compressions in a stair chair as they're being taken down you know and i love the fact now that we finally found ourselves to the point where no, we're just going to do it here. We're going to do the same as they would in the ER anyway. Twenty minutes of good CPR, and you know, either right. they're gonna they're gonna have a chance, or we're gonna call it on scene. Right, and it's so funny. So, like you know, again, over history of medicine, um, 
just talking about the fluid aspect, right? So to somebody, some professionals who did research, real research said, no, let's get away from blood and start giving them a ton of fluid. And then now, you know, that I think that happened sometime in the 80s or something like that. Um, you know, now we're back to the whole, like, I think in Korea, they were doing the whole blood stuff. And, you know, we're back to that again. And I was like, that's where, that's why I question, you know, medicine sometimes. Because you can look through the history where, you know, like the tourniquet thing, right? We were told never to put tourniquets on. Now it's the first line thing you do. Um, you know, we're told to always give fluids. Now you do not give fluids unless absolutely necessary. They're, you know, on the brink of death. So those are when people are always like, well, you know, the professionals said this or the, you know, they did research and whatever. It's like, yeah, there have been a lot of research on a lot of different things that we now no longer do. Yeah. it's okay to question, you know, if you think that this doesn't quite sound right. So, yeah. And I, you know, I've been in the research world and I've done research and I know that there are, as much as you try not to be biased, it, there, it happens a lot. Yeah. Well, especially if there's a <laughs> uh, funding coming from a certain, you know, area. I mean, there are, there are studies that prove that cigarettes don't cause lung cancer, but they're funded by cigarette yeah, companies. Exactly. Exactly. Like you have to, and that's what you have to look at. Who's doing the research? Who's funding it? You know, what's the purpose of it? And, and researchers, so if they have a theory or a hypothesis, they don't like to say it's wrong. (laughs) So, you know, it's, and especially if you're spending money and time and everything else, you know, imagine spending millions of dollars on a research and it not being what you thought it was. And the people who paid for this are not going to be very happy. Right. So, um, not saying, of course, that that's all research, but I'm just saying if some things don't always sound right, don't just blindly follow because you think, well, it's been researched. Okay. <laughs> so is giving normal saline <laughs> to yeah, our patients. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, and you take a step back and look at that. It's like, but there's no blood cells in saline. How can it be better? That's one of those things where even yeah. myself, who's not the sharpest tool in the box, can put my hand up and go, I got a question <laughs> about these yeah. fluids. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because like I I never considered myself smart. I, again, average in physical, you know, education, all that stuff, like intelligence. But if something doesn't sound right, I'm going to ask. <laughs> and I'm going to keep asking until I get an answer that sounds, you know, legitimate. And I, yeah, it's, that's why that's, and that's how you learn too, right? You have to question things and not saying to question things because you're always skeptical, but question to educate yourself too, you know? And if you're questioning things, always, you know, take in whoever is, is telling you. But if you, if you're still kind of like, I don't know, that doesn't sound right. You know, ask multiple sources, like don't ever go to just one source for your information. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to transitioning out because obviously that's something that we want to talk about as well. So kind of walk me through yeah, the, the remainder of your career and then and then what made you make a decision to transition out? So I so after Afghanistan, I get back and it's time for me to pick orders. So pretty much the whole time I was at Camp Pendleton, I was deployed. And I again, you know, um, was looking to stay in the area. So I applied to a couple of billets that were a couple of them were the Marine Corps. One was actually a training institution on Camp Pendleton that was non-deployable. Um, and I talked to my detailer, detailer is the one who, who 
works with you to to get your orders. And she was like, oh yeah, that that would be a great one for you because you just came back from these two deployments. So it'd be good for you to turn around and teach. <clears throat> and so um, when you apply for those, those kind of billets, it was, it was considered operational. So you had to put your three, your top three. And mine were all like that training institution plus the couple with the Marine Corps um, on Camp Pendleton. And they came back and they said, well, we're going to put you on um, the amphibious warship. And I was like, well, I didn't ask for any ships. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, well, this is it. Like, this is what we're offering you. So I was like, okay. So I call the guy that I'm replacing and I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm about to, it's another, it was another surgical team attached to the ship. So kind of like what we augmented in, in Haiti, that team, I was now going to be that team, um, on a different ship. And so I called the guy I was replacing and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm your replacement. He's like, Oh, thank God. Cause we're deploying. I was like, of course we are. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I'm Nikki Selby. <laughs> yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? Um, you know, just literally came back from Haiti, came back from Afghanistan. Like that total, all of that was over a year. And now I'm going to go back <laughs> to the Middle East on a ship. So yeah. Then I turned around and went back for six months. Um, the amphibious warships are like they're the Marine Corps transport ships. So we're out there. We have again a robust medical department, and then we're there to, um, you know, we the Marine Corps can do the beach landings from those ships. Right. So we always have those out there, and the you know at any given time there are those type of ships out there in case something happens. Um, yeah, so I did that, and then I came back from that, and then. I ended up back at the big naval hospital in San Diego in the ER. Um, at that, all the way up to that point, I was considered ICU, and so technically, you're supposed to stay in that field. Um, but I just didn't really like. I love ICU. Those nurses are amazing. They're probably the smartest nurses I've ever met. But I kind of like the faster pace of things and the unknown. Because when you're in the ICU, you usually know everything about your patient. I like more chaos, I guess. So when I had orders back to the big hospital, I asked to go to the ER, which um, I knew some of the people down there in the leadership. And so they, they ended up making a barroom deal because I think somebody in the ER wanted to go to the ICU. So I took that person's place. They took my place. So it all worked out. Um, and then I spent the remainder time in the ER. And at that point, I was at... What was that? 15 years, 16 years. Um, so I could, I, my whole plan was I was going to retire from there and, you know, hit 20 and then punch out. And at the time I was an 03 uh, lieutenant in the Navy and right on the cusp of, or I actually was, um, when you go for 04 is when you start competing um, on a board for a promotion. And right when I got off the tour on the ship and going to the hospital, I was up for O four and I got passed over the first time. And I was really pissed off about it <laughs> because I had just come off of three deployments. I was triple qualified, which is kind of unheard of as a nurse, um, let alone even just like a regular line person in the Navy. I had three designations, worth our designations. And 
was like, how that, like, how did I get passed over? Um, and it was to the point where a lot of people, like, you know, a lot of people had followed my career to that point and knew what I did. I had people calling me like, did you get in trouble? Did you get a DUI? <laughs> like, well, how did you get passed over? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> so, um, one of the theories is that, you know, I, and I actually had a senior nurse say, well, you were too operational. And I was like, well, first of all, I didn't ask for all of this. <laughs> Second of all, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Like when are we supposed to be deploying and supporting the Marine Corps and everything, you know, like the, the warfighters, um, you know, and then it was like, well, you know, because you were pretty much like by yourself doing all of this, um, by myself, meaning like in my own rank, uh, so I wasn't technically on paper competing against anybody else because I was in billets of, I was one of one, right? Uh, which is detrimental when you're getting promoted. But I was like, do they not read the write up in what I was doing? <laughs> like, I mean, I feel like it was kind of important. Um, yeah. So got passed over and only, everyone really was scratching their heads and like, this is crazy, you know, but then I had the people like, well, you know, you weren't, um, doing like you know the normal stuff which is like i call it the bake sales in the courtyard and you know the associations and all that crap and mm -hmm. yeah I, I and i and i said from the get-go i am not that person i think you should be an expert in your job first before you do any type of collateral anything like you should be the go-to person in your job what you're supposed to be doing absolutely um because you see what happens is like like when I was on deployment in Afghanistan, we had a, a more senior nurse with us who hadn't touched a patient in 10 years, but yet, you know, she's getting promoted all the time. Um, couldn't take care of the patient. So it's like, you're wasting a spot here. Like you're not useful to me if you can't even be a nurse. <laughs> so yeah, in my mind, you should know how to do your job in nursing, you know, this for, for us, um, before you're doing other things to get promoted, but that's really not the mindset in a bureaucratic organization. So, um, their idea is you break out by doing extra stuff. Well, okay, that's great. But if you're an expert at doing things that are not your job and you're not an expert in your job, to me, you're kind of worthless, but again, they don't really see it that way. So, so yeah, that was, you know, one of the things is that, well, you weren't doing all this extra stuff, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, then that's fine. I'm going to retire because I, I had, 10 years enlisted time behind me. So was like, I was pretty much guaranteed to retire. So went to Balboa, I think with the idea that, okay, I'm just going to do my three years and uh, be done. And my department head at the time, she had known me since I started as a nurse and she was very operational minded, which is very rare in that community. And she told me, she was like, I don't know why you got passed over, but you are going to get promoted. And I was like, no, I'm good. <laughs> Cause I kind of like, I had settled in at that point. Like, you know what? I'm done. I, it's fine. It's, a, it's okay. I went through my five stages of grief and I was pissed off and denial, all that stuff. And then I finally accepted it. And I was like, that's, it's okay. Like it's, this is obviously a sign. I can do my time, get out. And she was like, nope. Like, this is bullshit. Like, I know what you've done. Everybody knows what you've done. And, you know, we're going to get you promoted. And I was just like, I'm telling you right now, I don't care. <laughs> and I'm not going to do anything to to put on paper to get promoted. Like, I think it's stupid. You know, if you can't see what I've done, you know, or, or if you don't like me as a nurse, then it's pointless to be here. So, um, yeah, she was kind of mad at me, but she went to ranking board and I ended up coming out on top and then I ended up getting promoted. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Putting your foot down again. <laughs> yeah. 
So I, I had a choice. I could have turned it down and then just punched out. Um, but I was then offered not only the promotion, but I was offered to go back to Pendleton and then work on the, what we call in route care program, which is what I was doing in Afghanistan, you know, where they were throwing us on the back of the helicopters. And I had been a very big proponent in the community saying like, this isn't right. We need the actual proper training for this. So I had started some training stuff, uh, with just, you know, nurses to, to basically give them all my lessons learned and, you know, how to prepare for something like that. And I was offered to actually do that as my job for the last, you know, tour and, and be with the Marine Corps again. So it was really hard to turn down. So I took it <laughs> and spent another three years um, past 20. I did. So total, I did 23 and a half years in the military uh, and finished out. I feel like I finished out on top and I knew at that point. So when I did hit the 20 and when all of that happened and I was like, no, I'm getting out. I still like in my head, I was really on the fence and I, I, I did, you know, in my gut, I didn't know if it was the right time. Um, and I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do after. So I'm kind of glad it all happened the way it did because when I got promoted and then I, you know, I got to do what I actually consider my dream job up with the Marine Corps. I knew after that tour for sure, hands down, I was done. Um, so I almost, it's almost like I needed that extra little tour to be sure to feel really good about yeah getting out and making that decision so because I was actually offered to um my CEO was like no you can't get out at this point like you need to keep going and like keep promoting and I was just like no no <laughs> I'm pretty I'm done because at that you know I, I would have I was in zone for 05 commander which you're really getting political at that point and I was just like, I'm just not that person. Like, I can't play the game. I can't do all that. Um, I really feel like I'm going to be miserable if I keep going in that direction. And if I, you know, get promoted to 05, that's another, you have to do three years in that rank. So that then puts me at 20, almost 27 years. So at that point, I might as well just go to 30. So it was really that, that do or die time because I felt like, one, I felt good about getting out. And two, I felt like I was at an age where I could still do a lot of other things that I like that are pretty physically demanding, um, which I felt, you know, if I spent another six, seven years, I don't know where I'm going to be physically, you know? So yeah, it just, it felt like the right time to do it. Now, had you lined up? Because I mean, as we talked about when we talked you know, a couple weeks ago, you know, one of the things that I see that people struggle with in in the first responder profession is you know the identity your avatar is a firefighter or a police officer and you know when you, when some of our men and women retire and they they you know that door closes behind them on their last shift uh, some of them struggle with it and it seems like the ones that do well the ones that immediately have something else another passion project whether it's a hobby whether it's another career whether it's an altruistic project but something to pour their heart into something that so they can still feel like they're doing good in the world so did you personally have something to transition into or did you struggle for a bit after you left i i did um the nice thing about being a nurse is you do have a lot of options um but what I struggled with and I struggled pretty hard is I, when you are, when you know, you're going to get out, you know, you're going to retire, you put, you have to put your retirement papers in a year before you actually leave. 
And what you're supposed to do in that year is start taking care of all your stuff and um, all your paperwork and all your medical stuff and, you know, start lining up your jobs and whatever else you're going to do. And I didn't do that because I really loved what I was doing. And the program that I had developed was mine and it was my baby. And I really wanted to make sure that I got handed off correctly. And so I pretty much, I didn't, I kind of blew off all that stuff I was supposed to do. (laughs) And I worked up to the last day to the point, it was a Friday where my guys were like, what do you mean you're not going to be here Monday? And I was like, yeah, it's my last day in the Navy. (laughs) Like people just didn't really know, like, because I just kept working and um, yeah, so that Monday I woke up and it was like, what do I do? Like, I, I just didn't really, I didn't mentally prepare for it at all. And, uh, the next three months, even though I had options, I ended up taking a lot, like I, I started just piling my plate up and I, I just felt really directionalist and didn't know, just, just lost. Um, and even though I had options, I didn't feel really good about any of them. And so I just sort of jumped into everything feeling like I needed to pile my plate up with everything to stay relevant, you know, to, to let people know I'm still here and it became really overwhelming. So now I was, I was overwhelmed with all this stuff I had piled on top of my plate. And then I was feeling like I wasn't going in the right direction and I didn't really like what I was doing. And it just was it was really messy. Like it just felt messy at that, at that point. Um, and I kept thinking like, why don't people talk about this? Like, you know, and you do kind of, I guess, lose your identity a little bit because that's, it's all I knew as an adult is, is military and putting on a uniform every day. And I kind of equated a lot to not that I've been to prison, but I imagine it would be similar to that because, you know, the whole time you're in, you're waiting to get out. And then as soon as you get out, the door is closed behind you and you're like, oh, big world out here. <laughs> what do I do? And you almost want to go back because you had structure. I mean, you knew every day what you were going to be doing. You knew what you were going to be wearing. You knew what you were going to you know, be eating or whatever it is. And all of a sudden it's, it's turned off and you're, you have this freedom, but you don't know what to do with it. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, I struggled a lot with that for I would say a good three or four months. And I started a job. I was, I was actually teleworking, which was nice. Um, and I really liked my team. But I just, I didn't, I wasn't super passionate about what we were doing. And I, you know, my personality, I, I got to be passionate about what I'm doing. I got to really want to do it. And um, in my head, I was kind of like, you know, this, this doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like the right fit. And then New York came up and they were doing a, they're putting up a field hospital in New York. And I had off, gotten offered it to come out and help put that up and then be a part of that. And so uh, that was kind of the opportunity to leave what I was doing at the time. And I went out there for a month and a half or just a little over a month. Um, to help out with that, which was, you know, pretty rewarding. Um, and I, I feel like it kind of helped reset my mindset and, you know, kind of figure out, even though we were working really hard, but it sort of just kind of cleared a lot of my plate, um, to figure out what I really wanted to do after that. So. Well, it's interesting because you said you got busy and that's something that, again, I see 
you know, in my field is when, when there's a void, it could be from trauma. It could be, you know, just, just a lack of tribe, like, you know, when you're transitioning out, but, um, there's a tendency in, in the first responder profession to take over time, to, to be busy, to, to fill that void with more work. So, you know, there's, there's a difference between being busy and as you said, directionless and having passion, still being busy, but having a purpose and, and drive to that busyness. Right. Right. Yeah, that's, it's really important. And it's, you know, it just goes back to really preparing yourself before you leave <laughs> of, of what you want to do and not having the doors closed behind you. And then you're kind of, you're trying to figure it out at that point. Um, but yeah, just because you have a bunch of things to do doesn't mean that you're going to be happy doing it. So you, you really have to, the important part is to find things that you're passionate about. I I always say, you know, my emphasis is not on money. It's on, you know, being happy what I do and looking forward to waking up to, to doing whatever it is. Um, and a couple of other things that I did to, to kind of, I guess, fill that gap of purpose was I, you know, was working with a couple of organizations and foundations um, that kind of kept me in that military circle. And I felt like it was a way to give back um, to the community that I had just left, which gave me some of that purpose back. So, yeah, it's, you just got to find those different things. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about COVID. So, you know, we were, we were talking about some of the, the things people are being told that, you know, may not be the most helpful and accurate. However, you also saw the other side of the spectrum. You know, you saw these patients firsthand. So, you know, when were you in New York, York, and what was it that you saw at that time in that city specifically? So I was in New York in April of last year. Um, pretty much the whole month of April and into a little bit of May. And uh, I didn't know, you know, when we got plane tickets to to go in there, I didn't know what I was, when you looked at the media, I was like, oh, it's going to be like a, a zombie land. <laughs> like, you know, it's the apocalypse. I don't know. Like I, I hadn't, I remember when the plane was coming around to, to land, I was just looking over in New York city, like, oh my gosh, what's down there. <laughs> um it it was actually pretty eerie. It's, you know, if you've ever been to, to New York City, it's just full of life, right? I mean, there's people everywhere all hours of the night and that city is just crowded and you can't go anywhere without bumping into somebody. And there was literally nobody on the, on the streets in all of Manhattan. <laughs> it was, it was so eerie. Um, I remember going to Times Square and I have a picture where there's nobody around. <laughs> Like I, I like, just never can fathom something like that. It's it's insane. Um, it wasn't it to me. It wasn't as bad as the media was portraying. There were a couple hospitals that were getting hit really hard, and it was more like the county hospitals um, that were getting overrun. And that's what we were coming in for is to take the load off of those hospitals so they could. Um, deal with like the more critical patients. So in the field hospitals, we were taking those patients that um, weren't as critical so they could free up the ICUs and all that stuff. Uh, there were a few. So there was my field hospital, which had the capacity for 400 patients. 
And then we had, there was another field hospital down the street from Queens or Elmhurst where um, that's one of the hospitals that was getting hard, hit hard. And the army had sent up a group of people um, to do another field hospital. And then the comfort had come up with their uh, hospital ship and none of us ever reached capacity. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when they were portraying on the news, as you said, and they're not saying that it wasn't horrible. One of my closest friends got COVID and, um, he wasn't intubated. You know, they, they, they'd finally kind of found a better way. So he spent a lot of time on his stomach and, you know, a lot of these treatments yeah. that we found that work now. Um, another firefighter from that same department, he was actually intubated. Um, but they both, you know, I don't think they were at peak health. Let's put it that way when they, when they got it. But, um, but when they were showing, you know, oh, there's, there's patients in the, the hallway. I think a lot of us in the first responder, you know, world, especially the ones that transport, we're looking at going, well, there's always patients in the hallway in inner city hospitals. We have to hold the wall for hours to offload a patient. So it was, even though there were some pockets that absolutely were, were being overwhelmed, again, the media were painting this picture like it was World War Z when the reality yeah. was, you know, this, this busy ER. No one gave a yeah. shit when there wasn't COVID, when these medics were still holding the wall and these poor nurses were running around trying to find a bed, you know? So there was some very, very irresponsible reporting as well, I think. I, I do. I think so, for sure. Um, and, you know, and again, seeing it with my own eyes. Um, yeah, I definitely think that the... And that's what I've seen. Like, when I, when we were about to land in New York, I was like, oh my gosh, we're like, <laughs> is it going to be like this war zone looking place or whatever and yeah it wasn't i mean it's and again when you have all these field hospitals and it's like okay you have all these patients you have a ton of field hospitals and doctors and nurses and all these people and yet we're not reaching capacity and in fact towards the end we were like sending people teams out to look for patients at the hospitals like hey you can transfer these guys over here so uh yeah i mean it just and like I said, that doesn't take away that there were hospitals that were getting overrun. But in my mind, it's like, okay, then why aren't you transferring these patients? And there are a lot of different ideas and theories as to why they weren't, but it's not for me to go into. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think it's important that we get this perspective and people, again, you know, they, you know, I've had little snarky comments on some of the stuff I post and I'm very lucky that my social media um, community, let's just call it, are very, very positive, you know, very, you know, middle of the line, everything I post, I try and be just, you know, just putting, f- not even facts, just putting positive things out there, human things out there. But we hear the worst case scenario, we hear isolation masks, whatever. So it's not that you're disproving that so much as saying, look, can we also hear a voice of the responders that are like, hey, we're not seeing much of anything here because that's important to get an overall picture and deregulate some of the fear that's crippling some of the men and women that are outside our communities that only have the news to rely on. Right. And, you know, and that's in in being in New York is the first time I really started thinking about the businesses and the people because at the end of my shifts, we would have, you know, a lot of businesses were giving us food. Um, and feeding us. And at the end of my shift, um, we had a lot of leftover food from the staff. And so we would take all of the the food and we would go out into the city and because there was a lot of homeless and we would hand them out to the homeless people. 
And some of these people living on the streets looked pretty newly homeless. <laughs> I mean, there was, I remember this guy, it was like in a full suit with newspapers over himself, you know, and then there was this young girl who couldn't have been more than 30 who had like really nice clothes and nice purse. And she's in a box house that she tried to make on the sidewalk. And it really started getting me thinking that, my God, like these people probably are, you know, newly homeless who couldn't afford their rent all of a sudden because their business was taken away, you know, within a week (laughs) or told to shut down. Um, you know, they could have been part of the restaurant industry or the bar industry or whatever, where, you know, one day you're working and the next day you're being laid off and you have no, nobody's coming to rescue you, you know? Um, it really got me thinking that like, that's, this is terrible. And I don't think a lot of people really stop and think about what it would be like to expect a paycheck next week and it never come and like never come again. And you have a mortgage to pay and you have car payments to pay and kids to feed and a roof, you know, like, I don't think the people who are yelling about this, um, you know, stay at home, put your mask on is, are really thinking about that aspect, you know, from that perspective, um, because they are, and I will say luxury of getting a paycheck and not having to worry about that. And, um, I I just know a lot of people that were bartenders and, you know, waitresses or whatever else. And it's like literally are out on their ass with nothing, no help. That's it. Well, and just like you, I've, I've been okay this year. So when I talk about this stuff, I'm not pulling out a violin and giving myself a pity party. I'm trying to advocate for the people that didn't have a good year. And, you know, there's the, the gyms. I mean, we're lucky in Florida. They were a lot more, um, conservative with uh um you know the 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 regulations that they eased them off pretty early on but um you know these these gyms are closed down one of my favorite restaurants in orlando is a a healthy restaurant it's a vegan restaurant but it's amazing food they had to shut down meanwhile our chick-fil-a here has had cars wrapped around it solidly so how is that fair? It's just, it's not about, oh, you know, but it's, uh, you know, isolation. No, it's just, it's just not fair. These giant corporations have made hand over fist and the men and women of our community, as you said, have been forced into bankruptcy, homelessness and all these other things. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, that's when you start questioning things is like, or when I started questioning things too, is like, okay, you know, stay at home and all this stuff, but the grocery stores, like it's, I mean, you are on top of each other at the grocery, especially in the beginning when they're like, oh, you know, you can't do any of that. We're shutting down all the restaurants and everything else, but I can literally be on top of each other at Walmart or, you know, the Target grocery store, whatever, you know, like that doesn't, that's, it's all very, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Again, when you come, when you go to standard, right? Like, well, if you're going to say that, then that should be across the board, you know, like everything should be shut down, which would, that would be detrimental too. But you know, if you're saying like a restaurant, whatever, they, they can't be open, then it shouldn't be safe to be on top of each other at a grocery store. Yeah. Or <laughs> you if know? you're going to shut down a, a restaurant, this shouldn't be exclusively yeah. to drive throughs, you know, I mean, shut down. All, I mean, the right. fast food is the one that's making people vulnerable in the first place. So, right. you know, exactly. sh- if you're going to yeah. shut gyms, shut down McDonald's and Chick-fil-A too. Or yeah. you're okay with everyone eating shitty food. So then let the bloody gym stay open so people can at least get yeah. exercise. Yeah. 
And like, you know, it's just, it's just, I just call out the hypocrisy because I'm like, it just doesn't, if it doesn't make sense to me, you know, like the plane stuff, right? When you fly, it's, oh, stay six feet, mats, blah, blah, blah. And then you get on the plane and they got you stuffed in there like sardines, you know? And it's just like, uh, okay. Like when I was outside of this thing, you know, I had to be six feet apart and couldn't sit next to anybody, whatever. But as soon as I get in this, you know, flying tube, (laughs) 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 we have to, we're stuck. I mean, I'm literally like sitting on top of the next person. So, um, doesn't make sense to me. So yeah, it's, I don't know. Yeah, it is crazy. Well, Again, I'll probably get, you know, people to have comments about this, but, you know, you you have to think about these things and take them into, you know, consideration. Like, this, does that make sense to you? Does this all make sense to you? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, speaking of, uh, of fitness, I know you're training now for the tactical game. So tell me kind of what got you into that. And, you know, there's something that I've heard people buzzing about more. I think it's going to almost be the, the next kind of Spartan wave, I think. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. So this is, again, another case of Nikki not researching very well. (laughs) Um, I had actually done a podcast with a a guy who has a gym or, you know, has a a brand of like training and all that stuff. And afterwards, he was like, you know, I think I can train you for this tactical game stuff. And I was like, uh, okay, sure. <laughs> and I was thinking at the time that, um, you know, I was, again, we're in the middle of COVID. I hadn't really done a whole, I have a pretty good gym garage, but I really wasn't so motivated to get down there and, and work out. And so I was like, you know, this will be a good push to, to get off my ass and, and get back into working out. And then I started doing some of the research and I was like, this, what in the heck? <laughs> this is crazy like it's uh, okay (laughs) but he had already signed me up and paid for the registration and like oh okay well I'm kind of stuck with this now so (laughs) um and it was before I started my current job which this job is requiring a lot of travel and so like now I'm trying to do all this and travel and you know prepare and it's just been been pretty crazy but yeah the tactical games is basically across of you know, think the Spartan type thing or CrossFit competition and you mix in shooting with it too. So beautiful. Well how is that? How's preparing for that when you can't buy ammo anywhere? Um I've been buying ammo. It's just very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> um there are ways to buy you know, one you can just keep going to the the gun stores and buying your one or two boxes every day. Uh or you can actually bulk order online. So I've been doing a lot of that. Um, it's, it's again very expensive, but um, yeah, it's it's crazy though. This whole thing has just been, you know, with the gun sales and the ammo and not being able to find a lot of stuff that you normally could at any given moment. It's just been it's been nuts. It has. <laughs> Has the I bought a, a vest and I've, I've wanted one not because I think that we're going to have a race war or the COVID can't go through you know Kevlar, but it's purely because I you know do a lot of um, yeah, workouts with a vest. I'm like, well, if I'm going to have a vest, why don't I have a vest? <laughs> you know, rather than a steel plate from Rogue that can get shot through. So I ordered it, but it was been two months to get two Kevlar plates to me. So yeah, even that. I mean, you know, it's yeah, insanity. Yeah, it has been totally crazy so right 
Well, then, before we transition to some closing questions, just quickly, are there any nonprofits that you want to talk about, give people exposure to? Yeah, so, and actually, one of the first things, um, so the first foundation that I got involved with was the Hunter 7 Foundation, which um, their focus and their research is on the burn pits overseas and the exposures to those toxins that we all were exposed to. Um, if you were deployed at any given time. Um, if you're not familiar, the way we get rid of trash is to burn everything. And that includes not only just your normal everyday trash, but that includes anything you're trying to dispose of. So that could be medical waste. It could be, you know, batteries. I mean, all kinds of stuff that they always tell you not to breathe in those fumes. <laughs> Um, and those pits are usually like right next to where you're sleeping and eating. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. And we're realizing like a lot of veterans are coming back with really weird cancers and, you know, respiratory illnesses and a, a array of a lot of different things. And they, they're actually calling it the agent orange of our generation. Um, so the, uh, Chelsea who started the foundation, she, started doing research on it because her fiance was affected in his unit. Um, Hunter seven, the name comes from the master sergeant in his unit that came back or that was his call sign. And he came back and uh, had the very rare form of cancer that they didn't find right away. Because a lot of times when you go into medical and you complain, and, you know, a lot of the symptoms were pretty generalized. Um, they look at your age and they're like, ah, oh, no, it can't be this or that or whatever. So they usually just send you home with whatever. And after many visits to the hospital, when they finally like took it serious, I guess, um, and, and looked into it further, he had a very rare form of cancer that ended up killing him. Um, and so Chelsea's fiance was part of that unit and was having a, a, a bunch of stuff with him as well. Um, you know, different ailments and stuff. And so she started or he had said something there about, you know, I've lost more friends back here than on the playment. And she thought at first that he was talking about suicides and he was like, no, to just to like cancers and like, you know, all these other medical illnesses. And she's like, well, that's weird. And so she started digging into it and, um, you know, was thinking it's an environmental thing with the, the burn pits and the toxins overseas. And so I got involved with it um, because I, you know, I believe in the mission and it's one of the things I tell the veterans, you know, this can happen to you at any point in your life. You know, it's, if you were, if you served overseas and you were exposed to burn pits, you know, don't think cause like, Oh, it's been a, a year or two years. I'm good. No, this can like manifest at any point in your life. So this is something that affects all veterans during their entire lifespan. Um, you know, and, and the biggest thing is, is the awareness and being aware of your health and advocating for yourself. So that's one of the, the one thing you can do right away is, you know, when you go to the doctor and you have maybe some generalized symptoms and they try to like send you home, you know, to, to one, let them know like, Hey, I've been exposed to a lot of different things that, um, might be contributing to whatever is going on now. Um, you know, and then just really advocating for yourself, like, you know, not, not to say don't take no and be the stubborn patient, whatever, but like, if you think like something's wrong, get a second opinion or, you know, keep going back or whatever it is um, until you're, at least they start digging in and, and doing some diagnostic tests to, to see what's going on. Because a lot of these cancers 
are, that can be curable. Um, we're seeing a lot of guys with colon cancer. Colon cancer is if, if you catch it when there are polyps and, you know, just do a colonoscopy and catch it in stage one or when there are polyps, that's easily um, curable versus when it becomes stage four, you're pretty much, you know, it's a death sentence at that point. So, uh, yeah, so those are, that's that's one of the organizations that I've been working with. And the other one was is called GSMSG, which is Global Surgical Medical Support Group. And I actually went to Iraq um, after I gotten out to we, we go and help the Kurdish uh, train in medical different medical, uh, whether it's surgical, and um, we have surgeons that go over there and help out their surgeons. And then we also have a group that help out the the military, um, training them on um, TCCC type concepts and things like that. So that that was actually a good, when you talk about tribe, we actually were all talking about that and how we all came together. And most of us had just met for the first time in Iraq. And we just immediately hit it off. And we, you know, it's just one of those things when you come from the same background, you already, you kind of already know people and you know how they're going to act and how they, you know, how you're going to mesh with them. And it was a really good, it was kind of the first time after I gotten out where I really felt at home again, <laughs> if that makes sense. No, it does. Exactly. Um, and so, and the president of that organization, Aaron, he like, that's kind of, that's sort of a secondary mission with him is you know, to bring veterans together, um, you know, kind of give them back that purpose. So it, and it, it really does work. And I love the people that I deployed with over there and we all keep in touch and we have a group and, you know, we're hoping to go back again this year. So yeah, it's been great. Yeah, sounds like a great organization. Yeah. All right. Well then switching to some closing questions, we've been chatting almost two hours already, so I need to let you go. Um, first question I always ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. I mean, really in relation and the first book that comes to mind is the book tribe <laughs> tribe. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, I think every person should read it if they're, you know, transitioning or getting out. It's definitely, a, a should be on a reading list for everyone. Absolutely. Well, Sebastian's uh, been on here twice already. He's coming back on again um, oh, really? because he's written okay. a, a, uh, not a sequel, but a, a second book in the kind of tribe arena. It's called Freedom. So that should be coming out by late spring, early summer. So that'd be something to look out for. That's awesome. Very cool. <laughs> All right. Well, then what about a movie and or documentary? Um, the first movie that comes to the top of my head is one of my favorites is gladiator. And I was just watching it. Um, it's one of those movies that no matter how many times I've seen it, every time it comes on, I always stop and watch. It. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know why other than it, it kind of actually relates to a lot of what we were talking about, you know, when he's, he's, uh, gets captured or he's in you know there he's imprisoned and they all kind of find each other and they sort of make this tribe and together you know they are stronger and they are able to able to overcome the, the evil person or whatever um but it, it really to me was like a movie about just mental fortitude and strength and you know i just those are the people that i i like or the things that i like and trend towards 
because when it comes down to it, you know, it's just, it's all mental, right? <laughs> Having that strength to get through whatever situation you're in. And what about a documentary? Any, any of those that you've seen recently that you liked? Um, I'm trying to think if I, I haven't really watched any in a while. No problem at all. Well, uh, next question then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't think of any. No worries. Glad it is a good one for the movie. Um, so the is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the military first responders and associated professions of the world? Um, I have a lot of people that I would think should come on. Um, one of the main people that I'm actually super close to I consider him a little brother um his name's Wayne Popowski and he's one of the senior search and rescue medics in the Navy and has done a ton for the community and for like first responders and um changing a lot of the curriculum of how we get how the search and rescue corpsmen are getting trained as far as like you know upping up their skill level to paramedic and critical care and all that stuff um I've always said, like, why aren't people talking to him? <laughs> He's done so much for this community and for the pre-hospital environment and first responders. So, yeah, that would probably be my number one. Beautiful. Let's make it happen. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So then the last question before we make sure where we can find you, and obviously we'll talk about the Mentors for Military podcast as well. What do you do to decompress? Uh, so I, I feel like, and I call it my midlife crisis um i got into a lot of different hobbies when i got out uh one of them being skydiving which is funny because i'm you know terrified of heights I but I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i had to do it um that was very challenging too but i did get qualified i did let it lapse so i need to get back on the horse and do that again um but got into that i got into flying helicopters and then long-range shooting which i love and that would absolutely be my decompression if I could do it more often but there just aren't a lot of long ranges out here um but that I love it just because you're by yourself you're in nature you know there's a lot of thinking that goes into that one shot and it's it's very challenging and um in a weird way I guess it decompresses me (laughs) but you know every day I would say working out I do yoga um which is great. And I think everyone should get into that because not only for the, the physical fitness part of it, but for the mental part of it, um, yoga, if you go to a really good studio or instructor has a way of, you know, putting things back into perspective and, and kind of pulling you into the now, you know, in the present. And so I think it's, it's something that a lot of people should try, um, you know, and plus, you know, as you get older, it's great for your, your body and your joints. And, you know, they say you're only as young as, you know, your spine is flexible. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, your knees. <laughs> your knees, yeah, your joints in general. So, um, no, it's really good for you. So, yeah, yoga is a big thing in my life. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the last question. So tell people about Mentors for Military podcast and then, well, if they can find you online, if they want to reach out. So I am a co-host on the Mentors for Military, and they are a wonderful group of people. Um, Rob, who is the owner of that podcast, and he started it. Uh, the purpose was, you know, 
what it, the title is to mentor military. And they talk about a wide range of, of topics from the whole trip. You know, a big one is transitioning. So they're, the transition part is always, you know, managed to be talked about in every podcast that he does. And um, just other things like prepping for special operations or qualification courses, um, mental health stuff. I mean, just a ton of different topics for veterans that I think are very useful. Um, They have a pretty large following over there uh, because of that. And the guests are always very, you know, they're class acts. Um, So yeah, if you have a chance, definitely check out that podcast. Um, what was your second question? Um, and, and it's okay. I asked you like a whole bunch in one, one breath. Um, so then if people want to reach out to you or find you online, where are the best places? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I'm on LinkedIn under my name, Nikki Selby. And on Instagram is probably my largest page. And that is flygirlrn, which is fly underscore girl underscore rn. Brilliant. All right. Well, Nikki, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, I, I initially heard you on uh, Andy Stump's podcast. And, you know, when I heard you guys having the conversation with you both being Navy, it was fascinating. But to hear it more through a medical lens as well, I think there's so much value to, you know, to, to the audience that's listening now. But uh, I just want to say thank you again for being so generous and spending over two hours discussion, discussing, you know, the journey that you've been on. No, thank you so much for, for having me on. Appreciate it.